This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 12, and we're recording on Monday, January 25th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com and Snowpocalypse also. <laughs> it really so has stuff. been. <laughs> I, I was snowed for four days. Oh, I, I didn't believe it was going to happen, and then the nature is punishing us for my disbelief. It's so bad. Are you stuck? Are you stuck where you are? I mean, I'm, I actually could leave the house if I felt like it, but I'll, only half, like literally half of the roads, like not half of the total roads, but half of each road is plowed. Um, <laughs> well, that's handy. I, yeah, you know, I, you can drive on half of it, um, but I don't have to drive. So public transportation is mostly kind of up and running in my neighborhood. I don't know. Um, did you get a lot of reading done though? I like read, I read so much. I got no reading done. No, no, because I was staying at my friend's house, um, uh. Nikki, who is a book right contributor who lives in Richmond. I was staying with her and we were going to have, you know, a part, a snow party. I thought it was going to last 24 hours, like mm-hmm. that it would start snowing on Friday. I would leave Saturday. That was foolhardy. My hu- <laughs> I flew too close to the sun. My hubris. <laughs> destroyed me and I like didn't bring enough clothes and so we ended up just watching like romantic comedies and Clueless over and over the entire weekend. I mean that sounds amazing though. And it Clueless was pretty awesome. is a movie based on a book so. That's true. It was pretty it was a pretty great several days. I finally got out <laughs> this morning um but I like we Saturday by Saturday afternoon we were just standing in front of her big front window looking out at like the snow coming down <laughs> horizontally and you couldn't see more than two houses down, you know, across the street. And we were just looking at each other like, oh, no, oh, we what? didn't buy enough food for this. Like, we greatly <laughs> underestimated the because inter- normally when the, you know, this is Virginia, when the meteorologists yeah. say you're going to get 12 inches of snow, you get like three. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. we got like we got like 14. That's yeah, pretty bad. Anyway, yeah, that's my snowpocalypse story. <laughs> It's they a good one. Still haven't plowed the roads. Okay, so if you are new to the Get Booked podcast, uh, this is a reading recommendation show, so you can send us your reading recommendation requests and we will answer them on the show. They can be for you or for a friend or for your book club or for it doesn't matter, literally anyone. It's fine. You can email them to us at getbookedbookriot.com or you can go onto bookriot.com under the site onto the Get Booked tab and uh, there is a form in the bottom of every episode. You can drop your question in there. So, Let's just jump right in now that I've complained about the snow, mm-hmm. like 50% of the population of the country. <laughs> do you want to read the first question I and then do, I'll, I'll do. do the first sponsor? Okay. All right. Our first question is from Cassie. She says, I love dystopian fiction, but I'm burnt out on the genre. I thought some good science fiction might fill that gap for me, but I don't know where to start. I know I prefer books that take place on Earth or on planets similar to Earth, and I don't like too much military or scientific jargon, and I'd prefer adult over YA. All right. We have we have thoughts for you, Kathy. We have to, I have so many thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, but first, we're going to do our first sponsor, which is Penguin Random House Audio, with a specific emphasis on listening to audiobooks while crafting. Now, I know you're a crafter, Jen. Ooh, yeah, I am a cross-stitcher. Me I too, am. as am I. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, I grew up really thinking that I was the only person in my generation who cross-stitched. No, it's a movement. It's I a actually, thing. I have, I have organized crafter noons at which... 
50% of the women attending were cross-stitching. Like, it's a thing. Actually, so, yeah, anyway, okay. Crafternoons? I, Wait. Crafternoon. Yeah, crafternoon. I've never heard this phrase before. I don't think I made it up. Did I, <laughs> did I make it up? I'll take credit for I it. I have no Whatever. idea. Crafternoon. TM. I've had crafting parties, which I guess is just the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I've gotten I mean, together. But these did take place in the afternoon, so... Um, <laughs> I will say I spent half of yesterday cross-stitching while watching episodes of Teen Wolf, but now that yes. I think about it, I am sad I didn't. It did not occur to me to listen, listen to, an, to audiobook. an audiobook. I when I started like really crafting as an adult, which is which for me was cross stitching, and I crochet a little bit. Um, I did the same thing. I just watched TV while I was doing it, but then I realized I had this like light bulb moment of like, of course I could be listening to audiobooks while I do this, and so that's what I do now. It's really just kind of multitasking. Oh my uh, god, finest. you could have listened to the audiobooks of The Hunger Games while making the hunter cowls. Oh, I could have. I still oh. haven't read the last book, Don't Tell the Internet, <gasps> I just did. Okay. I know, I heard such like mixed things about the ending. I, I have a lot of feelings, but we'll talk about that some other time. Uh, I'll do it before I see the movies. Anyway, um, so the great thing about uh, tryaudiobooks.com, if you go to tryaudiobooks.com backslash crafter, they have listening suggestions. But the thing that I really like about this is they have a sound advice tool where you can input the thing that you're doing, whether it's crafting or going on a road trip or doing yard work or whatever, and then input the length of your project. So if you're working on a pair of mittens that are going to take you four hours to knit, you can put in, I'm crafting for four hours, and it will give you audiobook recommendations based on the length of your project and like the tone of what you're doing that's amazing isn't that cool so if you're going on like a 12-hour road trip you get recommendations for you know driving for 12 hours if you're going to sit down and and do nothing sit down and like craft and not move for several hours it'll give you different recommendations based on that and i think that that is just so handy that is really neat and rad um yeah so just go to try audiobooks.com you're an audiobook person yeah do you have any I, like? I mean, kind of. Kind of. I'm, I'm learning. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning. It I'm, takes I'm a getting novice. used to. Yeah. Well, I haven't found my favorite narrators yet. I don't even pay attention to the narrators, to be honest. I feel like I that's trouble. like a, a part yeah. of the audiobook culture that I just haven't gotten into yet. The yeah. narrators. Um, mm. Oh, they also have knitting patterns based on what? like with paired suggested <laughs> listens, which is so cool. Well, now I need to learn how to knit. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah that's rad i'm like looking through all these oh what a pretty necklace thing knitting without needles paired with gillian flynn that's cool i think yeah. i feel like if i were listening to gillian flynn while i was crafting i would like lose track of what i was doing <laughs> and just start paying attention to the book i'm doing a big feminist uh icon sampler for my niece's nursery nice. um so i wonder like if i could find like feminist themed audiobooks to listen to while i do that that's a great and idea and just like load up the cross stitch with all of the feminist vibes Rad. All right. So, yeah, go to tryaudiobooks.com to check out all of their recommendations and tryaudiobooks.com backslash crafter for specific recommendations for things to listen to while you are knitting or cross-stitching or paper mache, whatever it is that you do, that whatever makes you happy. Okay. So, answers for dystopian fiction set on Earth or some Earth-like place without too much military or scientific stuff. Why don't you go first? Yes. So this is exciting because I get to recommend one of my favorite series. Um, the first book is called Gem Signs. The author is Stephanie Salter. And the thing that's neat about Gem, Gem Signs is that it takes place in a post-post-apocalypse world. So like a disease apocalypse has happened and humanity has rebounded from it. So 
like you're getting sort of the dystopian flavor, but past it, which not that many books do. Um, and so one of the ways that in which humanity has survived this thing is that the genetic modification and genetic engineering have made huge strides. And of course, because we live in the kind of, you know, humanity is the way humanity is. Some commercial endeavors have started crafting human beings specifically for certain jobs. So, like, if they need people who can, you know, dive to harvest pearls, they'll engineer humans who have gills instead of lungs that need air. Um, And these people are not necessarily treated well. Um, They're called gems, which is short for, like, genetically modified human being. Um, And some of them have powers that nobody could have predicted. So the story uh, starts off with a scientist, Eli Walker, who has been charged by, like, an international commission to decide whether or not genetically engineered humans are actually human. And so as part of it, he is dealing with like these crazy companies and then the actual gems and like what they need and what they want and how they're treated. It's an incredibly moving, incredibly powerful series. I love it so much. Rad. Mm -hmm. All right. My, so that, yes. Okay. I lost my place. So my, (laughs) (laughs) what am I doing? Where am I? What day is it? I'm snow blind still. (laughs) So my first pick for this is the Mad Adam trilogy by Margaret Atwood, which is, I've heard it. I, I hate this phrase so much, but I've heard it described as cli-fi, which is climate uh, fiction. It's the worst. We've never got, utter that again in my presence. I'm so sorry. We have got to come up with like a better. It's just science fiction. It's it environmental is, but, science fiction. But it is like a sub-sub thing. Like yeah, a yeah, yeah. like humans have destroyed the planet because of environmental whatever. Right, that's a thing right. that's real. But like that, I can't with that phrase. <laughs> no. um, anyway, so it's not. Uh, I think it's a, a far enough removed from the the dystopian stuff that Cassie's burnt out on that it'll offer something different. Anyway, so this is Margaret Atwood. So you know it's great. It's dystopia. It's also post-apocalyptic. So it's a, it's on Earth in this whatever, future where mankind has been essentially wiped out by a genetically engineered plague. And the main character, whose name is uh, Jimmy, is struggling to survive in this world where he thinks he might be the last actual human being. There are groups of people who are kind of blue, um, who were genetically engineered human beings who also survived, but they're, they're kind of very, like, not animal-like, but childlike, and they're not very smart or whatever. And so those people exist, but he thinks that he's the last surviving, like, original human. Um, And so he's surviving in this world that Margaret Atwood has created that's um, basically just our world on steroids. Like, climate change has uh, fast-forwarded enough to the point that, like, you can't go outside in the middle of the day without wearing, like, a protective garment to protect you from the sun and genetic engineering of animals has uh, accelerated so much so that like you know whatever pigs are kind of sentient this kind of thing um and so he has to slowly search for other people and there are other characters that you're following so you know he's not alone in the world but there are other characters who are trying to rebuild civilization sort of in like tiny village sort of ways and deal with the changes to the environment and the changes to the world and at the same time you're going back through flashbacks to find out what happened to release this plague onto humanity and there's a lot of stuff that margaret atwood is doing here about like corporations and in um infiltrating the government and stuff like that like she's just taking every hot button topic in society right now putting it into a sci-fi series which is the thing she's really good at um and it's three books a trilogy that i really loved so yeah, Matt Adam. So good. 
Okay, so my second pick for you is called On a Red Station Drifting by Aliette DeBoddard. Um, it takes place in space. <laughs> Gotta love some space. Um, it's on a space station called Prosper Station, and it's set in this, like, Vietnamese-inspired universal government system. <laughs> so it, it's it's part of the Die Viet Empire. Um, hopefully I'm saying that right. And... Um, so, like, the station has lost a lot of its key people because they're away fighting a war. Um, and there's a lot of refugees and everything is kind of falling apart. And the station is controlled by this artificial intelligence. Um, and the current station mistress is kind of, like, really struggling to keep everything going. And then a refugee arrives who's actually, like, more than she seems to be and brings all of these political troubles down on the station. It is such an interesting, different kind of story, and I loved it so, so much. I found it last year, like, on a, you know, ebook binge. Um, <laughs> and it's such a cool introduction to this world that she's created. Um, so I definitely, I think you would really dig that. Okay, my second pick for this is the Passage trilogy by Justin Cronin, but I'm not actually recommending the entire trilogy, just the first <laughs> book. Um, so <laughs> I'll get into it. Okay, so Justin Cronin was a literary fiction author who famously, you've probably heard this story, but his daughter asked him to write a book about a little girl who saves the world. And so he went from writing this really um, like heady and academic kind of literary fiction to this huge, epic so long, you know, 700 pages a book, science fiction trilogy about the end of the world and vampires. And um, at the center of it is a little girl who saves the world. So it was a total 180 in writing for Justin Cronin, but you can still feel the literary fiction roots that he's got in the book. So it's science fiction and it's it's very genre-ish, but it's like the writing is just really solid and really great in the first book. Um, the second one was not my favorite. And I'm reading the third one now, but I'm it's not out yet, so I'm not going to go into it. But anyway, uh, so it's about, oh man, how do you like summarize so many things happening? Yeah. Um, so in this world, there is a virus that essentially turns people into vampires. It makes you super powerful. You lose all of your like humanity. Um, your sentience goes, you drink blood, whatever. You're basically a vampire. Um, and the government takes the virus and is trying to weaponize it. And in order to research how to make it into a weapon they're testing it on criminals who are on death row and so they've got i think well 12 obviously 12 criminals who are on death row that they put this virus into and then they need to test one more person and the person that they select to test the final version of this virus on is a little girl named amy and an fbi agent is um tasked with finding this little girl and bringing her to the research facility so that she can be well, not, not inoculated, but given this virus. Um, and he saves her instead. And also the virus breaks out of the facility at the same time. So uh, you're following both the destruction of society and the world as the, the like basically vampire virus spreads throughout humanity. And also this special agent's, um, not goal, but like mission to keep this little girl safe. Um, and it's just really gut-wrenching. And I know when I say it's a science fiction novel about the end of the world and vampires, people tend to be like, eh, I'm kind of tired of that. But it's not like that. Like, like the genre tropes are both present, but are fresh enough and new enough and interesting enough that I think it's um, refreshing. And I think you will like it. Even if you're burnt out on the dystopia thing, it's got enough stuff going on and enough interesting um, ways that Justin Cronin is playing with the, the vampire thing that, yeah, I really liked it. The first one is just amazing. 
And then you can go read the other ones if you want to. I don't know. If you like it, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> Concur. Yeah. All right. Question two. Okay. Oh, it's yeah. my turn. Okay. It's you. This is from Raquel. I love reading nonfiction about religion, especially on audio, and I'm looking for some recommendations. I'm particularly interested in Christianity in America, fundamentalism, cults, and sex, and I sex, S-E-C-T-S, to clarify. And I also like to read memoirs about spirituality. I recently read books by Rachel Held Evans and Jimmy Carter. I read Glowing, Going Clear about Scientology, and right now I'm listening to the audiobook version of The Great Reformer about Pope Francis. So, yeah, you want to go for... Oh, I'll go for... Yeah. I've got, I'll oh, yeah, got you more. got more. Go. All right. Um, so this is um, this is wheelhousey for me, so I've got a lot. Um, my first pick for you is The Book of Mormon Girl, Stories from an American Faith by Joanna Brooks. And this is a memoir about growing up in a conservative Mormon um, community. And then the author, Joanna, goes off to college and becomes uh, more politically liberal than her and progressive than her community uh, would really prefer her to be. So you get the first half of the book is a lot of that, like, look into the lifestyle of a kind of insular religious faith that doesn't have a lot in common with regular, like, well, quote unquote, regular modern life. So she's like, you know, they can't drink Coca-Cola and their politics are very... Um, extreme and you know whatever anyway uh there are a lot of uh memoirs about growing up mormon but the thing that i like this is the second half where she doesn't leave her faith she doesn't decide that she doesn't want to be mormon anymore or that she doesn't believe the things she was taught in her church but she does become so politically progressive that she starts to push back against a lot of the strictures of the mormon church and the one that she grew up in and she starts to get really heavily criticized by people in her church uh, both that she grew up with and like actual officials in the actual church. And so it's a really fascinating to me because I have a lot of, I have relate to this a lot, uh, look at how to stay a person of faith in a faith that is extremely problematic to you. Like there's enough there to keep you there. There's enough there of value to keep you in it and you respect it enough to stay in it. But at the same time, it's so deeply problematic. And how do you stay so that you can reform it? Is it even worth it? Like those kind of questions are, are really interesting to me. And plus, it does have that kind of insider look that I think you're going for. So yeah, that's the Book of Mormon Girl. It's by Joanna Brooks. Nice. Uh, so I <clears throat> will just preface with I'm not personally religious, although I did grow up in the Christian church. And I read all, I still do read a lot of people talking about religion because it's interesting. Um, <laughs> so my first pick is uh, an essay collection. I, I apologize in advance for not knowing whether or not this is on audio. Um, it's called What Are People For? by Wendell Berry. And it is, it's 22 different essays, um, a lot of which have been previously published, but they're all collected here. Um, and he is such an interesting person. This is kind of, you know, a lot of them are vaguely philosophical. One of them is about like how and why his wife does his typing. Like they <laughs> they cover a lot of interesting ground, but he is a person of faith. And in a few of the essays in particular, it really comes out in fascinating ways. Like there's this one essay in particular on the environment in which he's exploring the topic of stewardship from a Christian perspective in relationship to how we use the earth's resources. That was just like, I had never thought about it that way before. It was so fascinating. Um, and I just think he has a really, the way that he marries his faith with his philosophical interests is very compelling. All right. Um, my second pick for this is Mudhouse Sabbath by Lauren F. Winner. 
And Lauren Winter is such a fascinating person to me. She was raised, um, her father was Jewish, and her mother was kind of a lapsed Southern Baptist. And in her youth, she decided to become an Orthodox Jew. So she spends years in the Orthodox Jewish faith and then becomes more and more drawn to Christianity when she's in college. And eventually she leaves uh, Orthodox Judaism and converts to, I think, an Episcopal uh, denomination of Christianity. But anyway, she converts to Christianity. And her first book about that is called Girl Meets God. So if you're interested in just her conversion story or like an exploration of the um, similarities and differences between Orthodox Judaism and certain sects of American Christianity, then that's a good book to start with. Um, Girl Meets God. The thing I like about Mudhouse Sabbath is that this is a series of 11 spiritual lessons that she is has taken from her Orthodox Judaism and brought into her Christian practice, um, which is such a fascinating thing to me because Christianity, especially modern Christianity, and if you've read a lot, if you read Rachel Held Evans, then you're probably familiar with this idea, but modern Christianity lacks a lot of the, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? ritual, like ritualistic nature of other faiths, and even even like Catholicism, Protestantism lacks a lot of that. Uh, we, it's so much it's such a more like individualistic sort of thing. And so she is talking about the things that her Christian faith are, are lacking that she misses from having um, from her practice as an Orthodox Jew, like like sitting Shiva and how in modern American Christianity, when someone dies, we bring them a casserole and then expect people to get over it within two weeks and how it's not like that in Orthodox Judaism. And there's so many different um, things that she brings over. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just a really fascinating look at the crossover between two completely different faiths that one woman has personally experienced for years. Um, and she's written a lot of other books about both Orthodox Judaism and Christianity and her own personal walk in both areas. So if you like this one, you can really dive into a lot of her work and I really enjoy it. Yeah. Cool. Hmm. Uh, my next pick for you is Escape by Carolyn Jessup, um, written with Laura Palmer. So Carolyn Jessup was the fourth wife of Meryl Jessup, who is was a is, slash is a major figure in the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the FLDS, which is a radical offshoot of the Mormon church. Um, that is kind of famous for being crazy, um, <laughs> to put it mildly. Uh -huh. And um, this is her account of how she had to literally flee in the night and attempting to get her children out as well, because it is incredibly difficult not only to leave the FLDS, but to get your children out too. Um, and reading this book, I don't read a lot of memoirs, especially this type of memoir, but I found it incredibly affecting. She had eight kids um, over the course of 15 years. She was like, she as the least senior wife, she was the caretaker and sort of the chore person for almost all of the children in the marriage, which is an insane amount of children. Um, and the way that she talks about, like, she just lays out her everyday life is just bonkers. And then the process of like thinking about leaving, deciding to leave, and then trying to leave with literally $20 in her pocket. Like she has no control over her own finances. She has no control over her own schedule or her housing or anything. Um, and it is, it is a really intense and fascinating and also sad inside look at how you leave a cult and on top of it, how you get your children out as well. Um, and she's literally the first woman ever granted full custody of her children in a contested suit involving the FLDS. So like groundbreaking. Yeah. 
Um, my last one for this isn't isn't really a book. It's just a couple of different authors that I think you might want to check out. Anne Lamott, I've talked about her on this podcast before. She's like the grandmother of modern f- irreverent contemporary Christian writing. And she's great on audio. She reads her own audiobooks, and she's got this like very dry delivery of her own words, which I enjoy quite a bit. Um, but she's a <laughs> literal grandmother who lives on the, the West Coast and is very hippie hippie-ish, and writes about very progressive Christianity and Christian thought from her hippie-ish kind of perspective. And so most of her book, all of her books are nonfiction. Well, she's got one novel, but all the books that I'm talking about right now are nonfiction. Uh, Traveling Mercies is a good one. Um, oh, gosh, what's the one she wrote about her son? I don't remember the name of it. I don't remember. Oh, I'll put it in the show notes. But anyway, all of her books are great. And uh, she's she gets really angry about things that... If you read a lot of Christian nonfiction, which I have, I don't as much anymore, but I have, then um, you can t- you can feel most Christian nonfiction writers backing away from politics, unless you're reading some overtly like Joel Olstein, right wing, whatever kind of thing. But because they don't want to offend or whatever, be a stumbling block to anybody. But Anne does not care. She's got essays in almost all of her books about how evil George Bush is and how she has to, like, really struggle to forgive George W. Bush for, like, his crimes against humanity and that kind of thing. And so she has no Fs to give. And if that's your flavor, check her out. And the other author I wanted to direct you to is, um, if you like Rachel Held Evans, then I think you'd probably enjoy Jen Hatmaker. She wrote a memoir called Seven. And I think the subtitle is something like A Mutiny Against Excess or something like that. And Jen Hatmaker is a really fascinating figure because she was coming up in the um, evangelical church scene. Like her husband was a youth group leader and she, well, you know, was the youth group leader's wife. And they were doing that thing that like Christian celebrities do now where you start going to other churches and doing and giving talks and like going to their conferences and stuff like that. And then eventually you found a mega church and then you have a million dollars and then you have a jet and then you're a Christian celebrity. And she was like on that path. And then her um, life took a different turn and she had a big change of heart and they, her and her husband like gave up all their money and started a really tiny inner city church um, and like adopted orphans and, you know, just started doing more of the rejection of modern American Christianity and modern American evangelical life and doing it, you know, a completely different way. So that's a really interesting memoir too, Jen Hatmaker. Obviously, I have a lot to say about these books, and I'm going to stop. Let's move on. <laughs> question three. <laughs> All right. Let's see. My turn. Uh, this question is from Christopher. He says, I am looking for book recommendations for my boyfriend. He recently finished medical school and wants to pick up reading as a way to relax in the evening. Uh, trying to find books that offer an escape from his day job. I'm thinking an immersive series might do the trick. One that has less science and more magic or adventure. Um, books where characters stumble into new places and explore. He likes movies with fast moving plots and is currently enjoying Grossman's Magician series. And also, if it's the he's so Christopher I'm just going to paraphrase this part he's looking for books available in German because his boyfriend's native language is German so Mm. can I start yeah girl go I double checked all of mine. They're all available in German. Look at you! I like. I, didn't. I fell down a hole. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, this is so specific and interesting," and like spent like a really kind of unnecessary amount of time trying to figure out what is available in German. It is not as many things as I would like, but there are some very good ones. Um, so my first pick is Angel Maker by Nick Harkaway. Which you've probably heard me talk about uh, before, but I'm going to talk about it again. Um, It is 
an amazing sort of gangster steampunk historical slash present day heisty war novel. It's a lot of things going in a lot of directions. The main character, Joe Spork, is a he's an antique clock fixer, um, but his dad was an infamous con man. Um, and he is trying to, like, just be a normal dude with a normal life. And then in the course of doing a job on a specific clock, everything just goes totally bonkers. It turns out that his client is a octogenarian international secret agent. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite characters of books ever. Edie Bannister. I was Edie Bannister for Halloween one year and nobody knew who I was, but it was the most fun. It was the most fun. Um, So yeah, so, and then from there, the story kind of bounces back and forth to Edie's past and then Joe's present and all of the crazy things that are happening. Um, And it's so much fun. It's so smart. It is so action packed. It's super escapist in the best possible way. Word. So I just checked while you were talking and my two picks are also available in German. Good job. This is not a thing that I thought to, uh, I just assumed because they were like big popular books that they would be, but one should never, never Mm. assume. Anyway. Okay. So my first pick is The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. And this is the first book in the Gentleman Bastard series, which is so difficult for me to like articulate how much fun this series is. It's like Robin Hood meets Ocean Eleven meets The Godfather set in like an alien universe based around Renaissance era Italy. If any of that makes any kind of sense. Also with like a weird Dickens sort of feel. So it's about this kid named Lacklemora who's an orphan, but he is, he survives on the streets in the city called Clamore, which is built on the ruins of a alien race that has disappeared. But so he lives in this city and he's, he's a, you know, like a Dickensian orphan. He's quick witted. He's good at picking pockets and that sort of thing. And he's just kind of living by his wits. And then he gets taken in by an eyeless priest who is called Chains. Turns out Chains is neither a priest nor actually blind. He is a con man who rescues kids off of the streets and turns them into what he calls the gentleman bastards, which are just a group of kids who pull off heists and do cons and all of these these things. And so the book is about, you know, their exploits. And soon Locke becomes this kind of very infamous figure in Camor, um, which is kind of an oligarchy. So the, the city is run by different wealthy families, and he goes about taking money from all of the wealthy families, and the nobles start to hate him. And so, of course, there's like a price on his head, and there's... Then a shadowy figure called the Grey King appears and it starts killing off everybody that Lachlamore cares about and he has to figure out who he is and all this stuff. My only criticism of this book, and I haven't read the others in the series, but I love this book, but there are no women in it. Like there's there's a female character who is never actually appears but is talked about, but there there are no women in it. And I hear she does eventually appear in the later books. So if that's something that will bother you, you know, word of the wise. I loved it anyway. I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> <laughs> there's no it's chicks, okay. yeah, no chicks. Right. <laughs> um, but you will, I think, I mean, I loved the character so much that I didn't actually notice until like three quarters of the way through. And then I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> why are there literally no females in this book at all? Um, but it's fine. I got over it. And it's really great. You can read this and then go read some Margaret Atwood or something. There you go. Um, my next pick is the first book in a series that I have, I am newly obsessed with 
this is like what I spent the vast majority of my blizzard doing was reading David Anthony Durham's, uh, the first book in his Acacia series. Um, in English, the book is called the war with the mine. It's called something else in German that I cannot pronounce, but it is available. And this is, I think what I wanted from game of Thrones and didn't Mm. know that I wanted. So Mm. it is an epic historically inclined fantasy. Um, it's not, really European like there's bits of it that feel kind of like our world but it's I mean it's very different um and it is lacking what it doesn't have that Game of Thrones has is all of the intense like sexualized violence like I get why that is in Game of Thrones but it is very hard for me to read and this Mm. series does not have that Um, yeah it has all the good parts like it has the intrigue and the politics and the huge scale of the story and different narrators and um, it's just and really good action and lots of weird magic and it's just great Um, so in the first book you're you're introduced to the Akaran family uh, the current king's name is Laodin. Um, he has four children. His wife is dead and he's trying his best to like bring them up without knowing all of the terrible secrets that underlie the rule. Um, cause the Akarn family rules basically like the whole, the way they call it the known world, like the whole area that is in their purview, they rule everything. Um, and then he's assassinated. This is not a spoiler. Like you find this out right away. He's, you know, going to die. So he's assassinated and the kids are, he has this backup plan. The kids are sent to like all different corners of the world. And some of them get where they're supposed to go. Some of them do not. Um, and the story follows both their, a little bit of their childhood and then the consequences of the assassination, what happens when the perpetrators of the assassination take over, what happens to them. And I just, I'm like three quarters of the way through the first book and I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. No, there's three, there's three books in the series. All right. I want to go to there. Yes. Okay. My next pick is a kind of, well, not a kind of, it's a classic of the fantasy genre. And that's the Earthsea series. Well, the Earthsea cycle is what it's technically called by Ursula K. Le Guin. And the first book is A Wizard of Earthsea. And the, the thing that made me pick this is when you say that he wanted something like a way to relax, that your boyfriend wants a way to relax in, the, in a book that has more magic or adventure and new places. And this, the first book especially, but all the ones that I've read, and I think I've read the first four, um, have those elements. Uh, so in the first book, you meet a boy uh, named Ged, who is a very powerful and talented sorcerer. He's also a cocky and unwise and arrogant kid, as most kids, especially t- talented kids, can so often be. Um, so he goes off to be trained at a school um, in the you know the ways of being a, a magician or I don't remember the word that you mage. I think, I think it's, it's wizard. Yeah, it's, yeah. or is it mage? I can't remember. Well, I, yeah, I guess it would be wizard because it's in the title. <laughs> Way to go, Nelson! It's Monday. <laughs> Anyway, so he goes off to school um, to, uh, you know, sharpen his magical weapon and turns, I don't know, he's just kind of a jerk. Like, he's such a fascinating character because he's the hero and you want him to succeed because he is actually very talented. But he's such a jerk to everyone for, like, no reason, except that he has these talents that he did nothing to acquire. (laughs) Um, Anyway, that's a rant for another day. Um, and so he go, he's basically gets dared by some of the other school kids to do something that he knows is not just foolhardy, but actually very dangerous. He does it anyway and unleashes this like great darkness upon the world that he then has to spend a lot of his young adult life rectifying. So he loses everything. 
you know, in books like this about a really talented, like a roguishly talented figure who's so much better than all the other characters around them, there's, I mean, there's hubris and they, they usually are taken down a peg or two or whatever. Um, but you don't actually, I don't know, I feel like getting to see him actually lose everything and then spend so much time fixing it. It felt like a very unfamiliar story to me. Maybe that's not right. Maybe maybe I'm just maybe she just did it in a way that felt unfamiliar to me. I don't know. Anyway, it felt new and strange to me, even though this book was published in the 60s. Um, and a lot of fantasy that is out now that I have read is kind of based on it. But this has got a little bit of everything. There's like dragons. There's sea chases instead of car chases. You know, um, there's like shape shifting and, and a woman and all of this great stuff that makes good fantasy. But it's not epic. It's like 200 pages. So it's short. If he doesn't like it, he can abandon it really quickly. And he'll he'll know pretty immediately if it's something that he's into or not. But uh, it's a really fast read and isn't going to take a lot of, you know, if he's in, he's in medical school or recently finished medical school and wants like something where you can just escape and turn off your brain kind of. I think that's a really good series. They're nice and short, too. Like, yes. They don't feel like a big undertaking, but they're so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that series. Okay, my last pick is Robin Hobb, the author. She's amazing. <laughs> um, she has many, many, many books. She's been writing for decades. And um, I always suggest that people start with Assassin's Apprentice, um, which is the first book in the Farseer trilogy. Uh, it's sort of medieval. Um there's a boy who is a royal bastard. So it's a court setting. So this boy, Fitz, is a royal bastard. Um, he kind of is, you know, on the outskirts of the court. So nobody's really paying attention to him. He can kind of do whatever he wants, which is both good and really lonely. Um, but he has a talent. He has a magical link with animals. Um, and so his best friend is a dog. Um, but this talent that he has is a small part of a much bigger potential and also it's sort of outlawed. Um, and so finally somebody remembers that he exists and is like paying attention to him. And he basically is told he has to give up that magical link and become an assassin. They are training him to be a royal assassin. Um, and so it's about sort of this tension between like who you are born to be and what people want you to be um, and also assassins and magic. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. Um, and it's a great introduction to her writing. She's a ton of different books, all fantasy, all fun. All right. Question number four. Moving right along. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is me. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. This is from Ashley. And the question is, I'm looking for modern Gothic books. Whenever I search for books in that genre, the results are mostly books written in the 18th or 19th century. I have nothing against those, but I would like to read something written after 1920. I'm a fan of Anne Rice, Diane Sutterfield, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, and Edgar Allan Poe. All right. Modern Gothic. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, you go first. All right. Um, so... Rebecca, obviously, like I don't it was written in 1938, I think. So I don't know if this is too like much in the past for what you're really asking. But so I'm not going to go into it because it is st still considered a classic, I think. But uh, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, big house mystery with a evil ghosty type, um, whatever. What do you call it? Oh, my God. No, she's not even a villain because um, <laughs> she's like never there. Uh, 
Anyway, it's about an unnamed young woman who marries a rich widow. She moves to his big house in the English countryside in the middle of nowhere and is basically just haunted by the specter of his dead wife. And it's got all that gothic-y kind of stuff that you're like the big house. It's cold. She's by herself. There's a lot of really sinister figures in her life. Um, You don't know if she's reliable or not. All of that kind of stuff is present in that. But um, I'm not going to go into it too much because I'm sure you've already heard of it. But so other than Rebecca... My first actual pick for this is A Secret History by Donna Tartt, which was not written in 1938 and was actually written in 1992. And I love this book so much. I'm obsessed with it. So it opens with a murder. You're in an elite New England college, and the narrator has joined this group of like really bizarrely eccentric genius kids in this college who take, um, who kind of made their own curriculum out of the classics, so they're studying Homer and Greek and all of this kind of thing, under the influence of one really charismatic professor. So he gets involved in this group of misfits, and the book opens with one of them being killed. And then you spend the rest of the book figuring out why and how that came about. And it's got... I can't... Putting my finger on what I feel like is gothic-y about this is kind of difficult because it's not necessarily like one big house, which so many gothic novels have, but it is so dark. Like it's dark and wintry, like the weather is a, is a big factor in the book, which it is in a lot of gothic novels as well. And there is a death that has possible, possibly not supernatural elements. Maybe everyone is just kind of a little crazy, maybe a Greek god has descended upon the world to wreak havoc. You just kind of don't know. I mean, you well, I'm not going to spoil it, but um, there's a lot of, like, really intense, byronic, negative feelings in the book. Like, giant betrayals and all these big corruptions and obsessions and all this, these big feelings that I think that gothic novels have. Like, they're so, not sentimental, because that has, like, a positive connotation, but they're so big in emotion and these big negative emotions like terror and horror and all of that kind of thing. And the secret history really has that set in like a small New England college, which is just so masterful. And Donna Tartt is a genius and I love it and I'm obsessed with it and I read it every year. So yeah, (laughs) I'm going to stop raving now. Melodrama. That's what it is. That's what it is. Thank you. Yes, it is so melodramatic. And so a few of the characters, the male characters have kind of Byronic elements that that is so like that every gothic novel has a Byronic hero, but more than one of the characters here has like weird Byronic stuff happening. It's just so so much is going on in this book. It's so good. I think you'll like it. If you like Poe, I think you'll enjoy it. I want Byronic Feels to be the title of this episode. <laughs> done and done. I'm writing it down. This is what I'm writing down. Byronic Feels. <laughs> so my first pick is The Moth Diaries by Rachel Klein. It takes place at an exclusive girls boarding school. So school. one big building. Um, and it's it's basically a 16-year-old's diary. Um, and she is obsessed with both her roommate, whose name is Lucy, and Lucy's friend, who is, um, her name is Ernessa, and uh, the girl writing the book, the diary, is convinced that Ernessa is a vampire. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Against potentially all logic and say and thought. So the whole book revolves around this, like, is she just jealous? Is Is Ernessa actually a vampire? Like, what are Lucy, what is, what is the narrator's real feelings for her roommate? What is going on with this whole situation? It is so 
claustrophobic um, and sinister and just like really unnerving to read. Like I had to read it in like tiny little chunks because I was just like, oh my God, I'm so <laughs> uncomfortable. I'm so stressed out about this. <laughs> so yeah, super gothic. All right. My other pick for this is called Shorecliff by Ursula de Young. And this came out, I think, in a couple of years ago, like 2013, 2014. Um, and it takes place in, in the 1920s in the summer. And the protagonist is a 13-year-old boy named Richard. And his family goes to their big house in, on the coast of Maine every summer. And they spend the summers together. There's like a dozen cousins, a bunch of aunts and uncles and all of that stuff. And you get this such a it's such a great perspective because Richard is lonely. He's like a kind of an outcast. He's the youngest, so he doesn't really have anyone to hang out with, you know, and the the cousins are all older than him and have their own drama going on. And he follows them around. And the book is just about him like eavesdropping on conversations he's not supposed to be a part of. And it's it's a dramatic summer in a big gothic house told from the perspective of like everybody's kneecaps because that's where Richard is you know like he, <laughs> he sits on the floor and listens to people have like these weirdly incestuous conversations or he like hides in a closet when he's playing hide and seek with no one and accidentally stumbles upon like hearing his uncle confess that he's got a gambling problem and all of this stuff so all the family's drama it gets tenser and tenser and tenser and tenser as the book progresses and as Richard who is no longer I mean he's 13 so he's a kid but he's not he he is beginning to understand, you know, like he's old enough to kind of understand the things that he's hearing and to start to, instead of just being a witness, start to like interact with these situations that he's not even supposed to know about. So as he starts doing those things, it gets more and more tense. And like you said, like just like claustrophobic, like the walls of this house get smaller and smaller as he gets more and more involved in these situations he's not even supposed to know exist. And then there's a big dramatic climax, um, so big and so dramatic as he gets drawn into like this infatuations that his cousins have sometimes with each other, sometimes not. And all these secrets that he's not supposed to know about. There's lots of questions about like loyalty and family rivalry and all this stuff, but it's an excellent big house drama with a really cool um, and different kind of perspective that I really enjoyed. So yeah. Shortcliffe. All right. My last pick for this question is The Little Black Book of Stories by A.S. Byatt. A.S. Byatt is one of my all-time favorite authors. If you have not read her, everybody should. Um, this collection, like literally it's a little black book. <laughs> it's so cool. Um, and it is just story after story that are so dark um, like they are, they're black in, you know, humor and in plot. Um, and so like one of them, a woman is like gradually turning into stone. Um, another one is about these two middle-aged women and like the really messed up stuff that's going on in their apartment. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. One is like sort of a haunting, um, there's another one that stars like an OBGYN. <laughs> it's just really, yeah, they're super weird. Like some of them are, I think, what would technically qualify as gothic. And some of them just, I think, have that same feel. Like they're very dark. They're very claustrophobic. Some of them are very melodramatic. Like they're creepy and haunting and weird. And I love her. I love her so much. Okay, so let's do our second sponsor really quickly before we move on to our fifth question. And it is Book Riot Live 2016. Woo! Right. Once again with the jazz fingers. I um, know. Jazz hands. So why don't you tell us all about it? Or at least yeah, the yeah. stuff that we have so far. <laughs> the information that we have up until this point. 
Yes, it's all like sort of potential energy rather than actual kinetic energy at this point. But so we, I am like over my head deep in planning for Book Riot Live 2016. We had our very first two-day reader conference last year and it was so much fun. We're doing it again. Um, So you should mark your calendars because it is going to be November 12th and 13th um, at Metropolitan West here in New York City, which is right across the street from the Intrepid, if you know where that is. Pretty awesome. Um... Tickets are going to go on sale on March 22nd, and it is going to be awesome. We had such a good time last year. Everybody was so much fun. The speakers we got were amazing. The attendees were amazing. The vendors were amazing. We had people with um, geeky swag. We had our good friends from out of print there selling all kinds of awesome merch. There were publishers with recommendations for what you would like. Um, there's their call me Ishmael, like literally had a phone that you could pick up and dial and it was full of stories about what people loved to read. Um, and then of course there's all the programming. There's going to be so much good stuff this year. It's super, super, super exciting that we are doing it again. And yeah, I've like, can't stop talking (laughs) (laughs) everybody come to new york and hang out with us please (laughs) it's gonna be so much fun um and if you would like to hear more details about this as they unfold you can go to either um the post on bookriot.com or go to bookriotlive.com you can sign up for the newsletter so you will get announcements as they are available i will have some very good ones uh down the line um and that'll give you kind of the inside track on what's going on with it um and yeah you should come and hang out with us we're super fun <laughs> All right, we are. That's true. That's undeniable. right. Like it's not like tooting my own horn. Like we really, like we really are a lot of fun. <laughs> we are. <laughs> we are. Uh, yeah, shine your halo. I swear. Right. <laughs> okay. Question number five. I think it's your. You're up. It's me. Woo-hoo. Okay, so this question is from Rachel. I am a British girl who has watched Steel Magnolias fifty times, and now I want to add a bit of Southern flavor to my reading. <laughs> a plus work, Rachel. Yes, well done. So she says, I know the South, quote unquote, is a big place, but what books can you recommend that will help feed my fascination with the people and the places? I'd love a mix of fiction and nonfiction, and I've already read To Kill a Mockingbird and Go Set a Watchman. Fair enough. Amanda, it's my Southern lady. This is my jam. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So my the first thing that I want to direct you to is a post that we did on the site called 100 Must Read Works of Southern Literature. It's an old post. It went up in 2013. And the woman who wrote it, Emily Gatlin, is such an expert on Southern Lit. She was the person in charge of uh, last year's uh, Mississippi Book Festival, which was held in the state capitol, and, that I went to and moderated a panel on about um, Ghost of a Watchman and Harper Lee. So th- she knows her stuff. And th- the list will take you from, like, Mark Twain, you know, so early Southern literature, the foundations of Southern literature, all the way up to people who were right, Ron Rash and um, Dorothy Allison and people who are doing really great things in Southern Lit. Now, uh, so I will leave a link to that and you can check that out. But um, as far as actual titles go, my first pick for you is nonfiction. It's Men We Reaped by Jasmine Ward, which is a memoir that she wrote about growing up in New Orleans and losing five young black men close to her um, when they were still in their young adulthood. So if you've got, especially, I mean, you're you're British, so I'm sure like the, the nuances of race relations in Southern America, probably not a thing. You're like super... 
you know, read up on. It's not a thing a lot of Americans in the South are super read up on. Um, so, but it, so it'll probably be very eye opening for you. But of course, the South has a really complicated racial history, um, really complicated and devastating racial history that continues to affect Black Americans now, today. Obviously, you can tell just by reading the news. And so if you're at all interested in that that lived experience of being Black in the South now in contemporary America, then it's really must read. Um, it was completely eye-opening for me, and I grew up here. So Jasmine Ward is amazing. I love it. That's my first one. Yeah, that, that memoir is bonkers good and also bonkers sad. It's so sad. Really- Oh, it's so intense. Um, really, really, it should be required reading, I think, for everybody who lives in America and elsewhere. Uh, okay, my first pick is The Wettest County in the World by Matt Bondurant, which is fiction based on reality. Um, <laughs> so he, Matt Bondurant, the author, wrote this um, sort of based on his real-life grandfather and two granduncles. Um and it is about Franklin County, Virginia, during Prohibition. Um, and so uh, Sherwood Anderson, like a real old-time journalist, called Franklin County the wettest county in the world. Um, it was a sort of hotbed of smuggling and bootlegging and all of that stuff during Prohibition. So it's about these three, you know, sort of family, well, these three brothers, um, Forrest, Howard, and Jack. And, you know, they are, they want to make their lives better. And the way they choose to do that is through bootlegging, um, which is obviously not like a easy slash safe occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, this book, I loved the writing in it. It was so like gritty and earthy and he really um, just captured so much of the atmosphere and the feel and like, like I like felt like I like felt like I was there walking the roads and getting dusty and, you know, sneaking around the woods at night. Um, and uh, and it's also kind of violent. Like there's a lot of action in it um, and really intense stuff, but it's so worth it. Um, and there's actually, I think, a Netflix miniseries based on this. So if you like it, there's that, too. But, yeah, I thought this was amazing. It's an interesting look at sort of the Prohibition era and also this family story that's real and then recreating it as fiction. Okay, my second pick for you is Cold Mountain by Charles Frazier. If you've not read anything, like if you've not read a lot of Southern literature, then you're obviously going to eventually need to read a Civil War novel. Um, And I recommend that you kind of skip uh, Gone with the Wind and instead read Cold Mountain. Um, You can go back to Gone with the Wind. I mean, no shade to Gone with the Wind. I love Gone with the Wind. My son's name is Rhett. One of my son's name is Rhett, so it's fine. But it's not... um, what, how to say it's problematic and I would prefer that that not be your first introduction to the Civil War um, as far as fiction goes so the Cold Mountain is kind of like Homer's Odyssey set in the Civil War and it follows a man uh, whose name is escaping Inman it follows a man named Inman who is f- kind of fleeing the Civil War he's a wounded Confederate soldier and he walks away from the war and starts walking back home to Ada, who is his sweetheart from, you know, before the war started. And she is this um, kind of Southern Belle figure. Cold Mountain is in North Carolina, so that's, you know, where she lives. And she's very prim and proper, and her family was very well-to-do and established, and she does not know how to take care of herself, essentially. And then as the war continues and her father's farm becomes more and more run down and they face more and more struggles, eventually she's left by herself and she's got to figure out how to survive. So the book follows both of them. You're, you're with Inman as he's leaving violence and going on his odyssey back 
home to this woman and you're also with her as she tries to survive and takes in a drifter named Ruby who helps her, um, you know, feed herself, essentially. Um, and it's just, uh, it's just so good. Like, I'm just, I can't even, I just can't. I just can't even. I can. That's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's a lie. So it's got this kind of, uh, not Dickensian, but almost Victorian cast of really odd and interesting characters. And the people who help Ada and Inman on their way back to each other are not often people represented in both depictions of the Civil War and in Southern literature in general. So, like, slaves, women, that sort of thing. Um, but it's it, it's heartbreaking. It's such a heartbreaking look at violence and this, this particular brand of violence that we inflicted on ourselves, um, the effects of which we're still dealing with now. Uh, so it's still kind of relevant, even though it's a novel about a war we fought, you know, 145 years ago or whatever. But yeah, I really like it. There you nice. go. <laughs> I saw the movie, but I haven't read the book, and now I feel like I should. Oh, it's so good. Did you see the movie? Yeah. Do it. Do it. Was it a good like representation? Do it you think of the book? Fine. I had a lot yeah. of problems with like the casting. Ah, uh, of course. Yeah. Whatever. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, sorry. Sidetracking. It's um, fine. My second pick is Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which is kind of a famous example of the nonfiction Southern genre. Um, it is not written by a Southerner. It is written by John Barrent, who is, I believe, a New Yorker. Um, he uh, was on assignment and went down to Savannah um, to investigate a murder case. Well, investigate slash cover. Or maybe he was on assignment for something else and stumbled into this. I can't quite remember how it starts. But anyway, he's in Savannah. He's on sort of the hunt for more information about this case um, that happened in the 80s. And he is meeting all of these people um, in the course of his investigations and, of course, just like being in Savannah. And he does a really interesting job of like telling all of these different people's stories in the context of this one murder. Um, I really think he's a, a fun writer, a really interesting writer. The book, I just hung on it. Um, I've reread it a couple of times, although not lately. And now I kind of want to, I'm like talking <laughs> myself into rereading it as I'm yes. explaining it to you. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just a fascinating look at this one town and what it's like there and what happens when something happens in the town. All right. I think we should stop here. Sure. Yeah, we can save it. We've got one more question in the agenda, but we're out of time, and so we can save it for next week. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I really, it's a good question, and I really want to talk about it. So that's our show. <laughs> I have just decided. Bangs my gavel. Uh, if you like the show, or even if you don't, whatever, I don't care, um, please do go rate us on iTunes and leave a review. It makes the show more searchable so more people can find it. You can find us on social media. I'm at, I'm Amanda Nelson, and Jen is at Jen. I-R-L, Jen with two N's. And thank you to Penguin Random House Audiobooks for sponsoring the show and Book Riot Live. Thank you to us. We are awesome for sponsoring us. (laughs) (laughs) So awesome, so fun, so modest. So good, so good, uh, so humble. And we will see you all next week.